invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're nearing the end of this terrific little book, this little letter. Taking our time as Peter is um, applying for us what it looks like again to live according to the gospel of our Lord and Savior. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 8 and 9 as we look at uh, the truth of the fact that we have an adversary, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning, our adversary. Just to let you know that we're, um, this is a, the idea of the, uh, the devil's activity and demonic activity. Those are things that are, are real, and uh, we're going to be having a, a Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class, starting this fall on a spiritual warfare. What is it? Um, What's it about? How do we how do we interpret it? And what's the scripture have to say about it? What's our what's our um, calling um, and to to equip ourselves? Uh, what's uh, helpful? What's not helpful? What's true? What's not true? Uh, there's a lot of confusion out there in the evangelical world about uh, the nature of spiritual warfare. It's a bit of a hot topic, and uh, we're gonna uh, looking forward to that class this uh, this fall. Let's pick it up here in chapter five, verse one. Peter writes, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. <clears throat> and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing this morning. God in heaven, we thank you that you speak today in your word. We thank you that your spirit has been given today, that we might understand it. And so, Lord, we ask for your rich blessing. We trust that these are words that uh, you want us to hear, and these are words that are able to, to radically transform our lives and help us to live for the glory of God. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, if you remember, uh, we looked at the topic of Christian humility. Uh, Christian humility is the conscious commitment to submit to God's mighty hand, to let God be God. Uh, I hope you, that you've been thinking about that, that, that this week. Uh, you, if you actually put this into practice, you'll be amazed at how many things you can take off your to-do list if you decide to let God run the world. 
Uh, let's be honest, keeping the planet spinning in orbit is a full-time job for most of us. And if you just let God be God, let God run the world, there's all sorts of things that you're going to find that you don't have to. Uh, you can just sort of check off the list. Of course, your complaining list is going to be completely shot. Because we tend to have right a list of things that we give ourselves permission to complain about. Uh, whether it be um, our job or our spouse, or our children, or the weather, uh, how we feel today. But if you actually accept that God is God, and that uh, God can run the world, and God can order your life as he best sees fit, if you're going to accept that truth, well, then you, you can't really at the same time complain about it. Because you see, If God is God and God has the right to run the world and to run your life the way he thinks is best, well then, to complain is charging God with failure and wrongdoing. And if you were God, you would probably find that offensive. Uh, That the creatures made in your hand, that you shower with blessings day after day, uh, point their little puny fingers at you and charge you with wrong. So uh, the complaining list, of course, has to go. But the benefit is that the worry list can go too. If God is God, Peter really wants us to be just cognizant of the reality of God. If God is God, if God has loved you in Jesus Christ, if God actually cares for you so much that he sent his son to give his life for you, if that's true, well, then you don't don't have to worry so much. You can cast your anxieties on God. You see, if if you're not in in charge of making your life work, which is the the fatal, proud assumption behind anxiety, that it's my responsibility to to keep this thing working. If that's not true, if you can can humble yourself before God and, and turn from your pride, you'll find that you can start receiving gifts from God, and you can, you can accept life as you're living it as the life that God wants you to live, and the life that he's convinced is for your good and for his glory, and you can, you can cast your anxieties on the Lord. You can, you can just take them and chuck them with supplication, knowing that God cares for you. It's a radical truth, but it's a truth that doesn't mean that life suddenly gets uh, immediately easy. In fact, that's not the point at all. There will still be the difficulties, there'll still be the trials, there'll still be the heartaches, there'll still be dangers. Your heart will be broken at times because of the reality of sin, yours and other people's. Peter's writing to a suffering church. He's reminding reminding them that suffering is normal. It's normal Christianity. Don't be surprised. But you see, Peter is convinced that there is a way for God's people to live in the reality of this world with grace and peace multiplied to them. That it's possible to experience genuine peace and to experience the wonder of God's grace in the middle of the trials and the difficult circumstances of normal, suffering Christian life. He wants us to experience that. We're going to really uh, tackle that next week as we look at the wonderful truths contained in verse 10. That's just uh, that's a grace bomb waiting to explode. Uh, there's so much good stuff there. But this morning, Peter wants to remind us that a peaceful mind, which is yours by right in Jesus Christ, is not a sleepy mind. That there is, um, 
there are things we need to be paying attention to. The peace of God is not an apathetic peace. It doesn't lead to spiritual sort of numbness, but a spiritual sensitivity. It's a peace that makes us sober and watchful because we have an adversary. We have an adversary. It might be, seem like a strange thing to say immediately after you say, cast all your anxiety on the Lord. Don't be anxious. By the way, there is a devil who's like a roaring lion. He's prowling around and he wants to get you. That wouldn't be a thought that would uh, seem to fit naturally with um, don't be anxious. Don't worry, but someone's right behind you, right ready to pounce. What, why does Peter do this? Well, because Peter lives in the real world, and he knows that's where you live, and that's where I live, and we have to be ready to face the real world in the peace of God. we got to be sober-minded and watchful. And so let's first look at the call. Be sober-minded. A sober mind is a clear mind. It doesn't mean a somber mind. You don't frown all the time. It just means you're, you're clear-headed. You're not drunk with pride, with power, with success, with pleasure, You're, you, you got a clear head. You're thinking right. You understand this is actually God's world, he's, and he's got this. Jesus Christ reigns over this world. He reigns over your life. It's going to be okay. You're going to make it. God promises that, verse 10. But you also, with a sober mind, you understand that things right now are not the way they're supposed to be. There is a devil that is roaming through the world. Uh, the outcome of this battle is not in doubt. You know how it's going to end. The victory is secure, but the battle rages on, and we need to be paying attention. If you think about the end of World War II, the Allied soldiers knew that victory was certain. They were going to win, but they also knew that, that the Germans' uh, bullets or the Japanese bullets were just as deadly as they were at the beginning of the war and that you had to be paying attention or you could lose your life. There's a, precisely because victory you see is coming, it, it just all the more says we need to be paying attention because the, the battle is still going on and the devil's bullets still wound. We have to realize, Peter wants us to know, that the devil is is out to cause great hurt. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. It's the third time in his letter Peter has said this, if you remember. Chapter 113, 4, 7, and now again here. Be sober-minded. Get your head on straight. Be watchful. Be paying attention. Why, why does he say this so often? Well, do you remember Peter's own personal experiences? He learned this, this lesson the hard way. Uh, Jesus had told him, if you remember, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have you to sift you as wheat. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, had apparently gone to God and in some way said to, to God, look at this guy. He's full of pride. He's full of himself. This, this man needs to be taken down. Let me have him. And Jesus says, but Simon, I've prayed for you so that you will not fall. And then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and um, there Jesus asks the disciples to, to wait and to watch and to pray with them, and when he comes back, they're, they're dead asleep. And Jesus says, Could you, couldn't you just stay awake for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is saying, 
gentlemen, there's a war going on right here, right in front of you. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what happened next? Does, does Peter take Jesus' words to heart? No, he really doesn't. He probably agreed with it, but he was tired. He goes back to sleep. And then the soldiers come, and Jesus is arrested. Next thing you know, Peter finds himself in a courtyard committing the greatest sin of his life by denying that he ever knew Jesus. He wasn't, he wasn't watching. He wasn't watching, even though Jesus had just told him to do so. So Peter knows from personal experience the reality of uh, the devil and his, his attack, his power, and so he writes to tell us the concern. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter titles him the adversary, our adversary. Antidikos, one who opposes. If you've ever been sued by someone, uh, if you've ever been attacked by someone physically or verbally, and it, it was clear that their intent was to do you harm, well, th then you know what it feels like. And that's exactly what... Peter says the devil is trying to do. Someone with great spiritual power, you see, is out to harm you. The devil's given many names in the Bible. None of them are good. They, they speak of this, this evil intent to harm. So he's called in Revelation 12 the great dragon. And if you remember in Revelation 12, he's waiting for the woman uh, to give birth to the child, the Christ child, and to devour that child. He's called the ancient serpent. He's venomous, treacherous. He's called the deceiver of the whole world, which is exactly what he does. He deceives. He's called the accuser of God's people. He's a murderer, Jesus says in John 8. He's a liar, 1 John 3, verse 8. He blinds the minds of men, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's eager to snatch away the seed of the gospel when it's sown, Mark 4.15. This is what he does. This is, this is his nature. He does it because he is evil. And he does it stealthily. His strategy, Peter says, is to prowl around seeking someone to devour. He's re restless and relentless. He doesn't stop. Driven by his passionate hatred of God, he's always seeking, it. it's a strong word that speaks of a, of a desire, a hunger. What is he hungry for? He's hungry for people. He's hungry for you. Seeking whom he may devour. He's hungry to lead souls to their eternal destruction. That's what he loves and desires. That's what he hungers to do. And he does it stealthily to prowl very graphic language. He's not just walking around. He's not running around. He's not moving around. He's prowling around like a cat, right? You see a big cat that when it sees the prey, it crouches immediately down and begins stealthily to approach. He's cunning. Think about Peter's own existence. How did, how did Simon get Peter to fall? The devil is not omniscient, doesn't know everything, but he knows what works generally, and so um, he uh, comes to Peter first, the way he comes to the rest of the disciples, with, with a threat of physical 
pain, right? Or, or punishment of some sort. The soldiers arrive. And you, you find the disciples sort of falling back. And they're going to be pretty quickly heading for the bushes, right? They're going to get out of there. This is going to be enough to drive them away from Jesus. Is it enough to drive away Peter? No. Peter picks up a sword and gets to work. Here we go. It's, he's, he's not susceptible to that sort of threat. He's, he's ready for that one. So then how does the devil get him to fall? It's, well, it's not through an army. It's not through a bunch of armed men who can, who can cause great physical pain. It's through this little girl that asks a question. Weren't, weren't you with Jesus? I think I saw you with Jesus. That's how the devil gets Peter to fall. You can't threaten him. But when the little girl asks a question, Peter collapses, commits the greatest sin of his life. The devil, you know, he, He's not omnipresent, omnipresent, but he knows generally if this doesn't work, then this often does. If it's not fear of pain, it's probably fear of your reputation. It's probably um, fear of being disliked, fear of being left out of the group, whatever it might be. And so the devil does his work, and Peter says, we've got to watch out. Peter, uh, Paul speaks in the same way. He says, just remember, the devil often appears as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. The devil's agents are often very religious and moral people. Often. False teachers are often very nice guys. Church history proves that. Very moral people. Peter, uh, Paul writes about them in, in the 2 Corinthians chapter 11, these false apostles. And, and uh, they disguise themselves as angels, as angels of light. No... no um, Mystery there, their father, the devil, does the same. When Jesus meets with the Pharisees, the most religious, moral people that were in the land of the day, these are good men in everybody's eyes. And Jesus says, you're, you're children of the father, the devil. He's a murderer and you're a murderer. He's a liar and you're a liar. Religious, moral people, you see. And, and the, the litmus test Jesus gives there in John 8 is this, if if, you, if God were your father, then you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. The litmus test, in a sense, you see, of whether this is the spirit of Christ or not, is, is there a love for Jesus Christ? If a person is a child of God, right, they love God and they love Jesus. And when they don't, they grieve it, right? When we don't love Christ as we should, you don't just brush that off. It breaks your heart. If you're a child of the Father. And so, Paul, Peter just, we got to realize that this is not always so easy to see. There's cunning involved here. We got to be sober minded. We got to be watchful. We got to be paying attention. We got to be able to understand the times, interpret what's taking place. Just think about our country. I'm not going to spend much time on this. But if you look about the confusion, the incredible confusion in our country, what causes this? How is it that people can't determine that if, there, if there would be such a thing as a, as a man or a woman? Well, this is, this is just spiritual confusion. You see, the, the question that's being asked in our country today is, who has the right to define me? Who has the right to even lay biological boundaries in my life? Who gets to do that? That's the question being asked. And the answer coming back is no one. If you feel like this, you're, then you, you get to be whatever you want to be. No one has the right to define you. 
This is not a, it's not a gender question. It's an authority question. See, the devil says, has, has God really said? You know, God says, I made male and female, created he them. It's so constricting. Did God really say? He said, just pay attention. What's happening in our, in our, in our nation is, is spiritual far long before it's political or cultural. But the command here that we need to be thinking about is, where does this hit us? You see, what lies do we believe? The devil's a liar. That's how he, he's, he deceives. So where is he lying to you? Where is he deceiving you? Whether it comes to your, your, your finances, when it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to uh, what obedience looks like, what you live for, what's okay, what's not okay, the motives that drive you. Think of all the, uh, just the assumed um, rights we think we have. Just lies we believe. Where's the devil deceiving you? There's a, a book came out, I don't know, probably 10 years, maybe not already. A Lies Women Believe by Nancy Lee DeMoss. And I know that a lot of you ladies have read it, and I've heard uh, great um, responses to that book. Lies Women Believe. There ought to be another one, Lies Men Believe. Maybe there is. Because that's, boy, we need the truth of the word of God uh, because the devil's lying to us all the Time. Now, Peter says, we got to respond to this. The devil is, he's, he's active, he's engaged, he's engaged in your life. He's not this mythical figure out there somewhere. He is active, engaged, seeking to devour you and those you love. What do we, do, what do we need to do? Peter says, resist him. Resist him. Notice, Peter doesn't say, argue with him. He doesn't say, reason with him. He doesn't say, debate him. But it's resist him. Um, there's a great little book here by an old Puritan, uh, Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Classic old Puritan book. If you want to really get into um, the Puritan's way of thinking about all the ways they're just so good at sort of cataloging temptations of the devil, the way the devil works, and then how to resist it. But he has this great uh, line in here about helps. He says, if you would not be taken with any of Satan's devices, then make present resistance against Satan's first motions. So when the devil first shows up in some temptation or other, that's where, that's where you need to resist. He says, it is safe to resist. It is dangerous to dispute. In other words, to reason, to consider, to have this dialogue going with the devil about, well, you know, it's... You see, when, when, you've already gone too far. Listen to what he says. Eve disputes and falls in paradise. Perfect person, perfect environment, she falls through disputing. Job resists and conquers on the dunghill. Circumstances are shot. But Job resists... And conquers. He that will play with Satan's bait will quickly be taken with Satan's hook. The promise of conquest is made to resisting, not to disputing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James 4 verse 7. It's resisting, not disputing. You start playing with the bait, you're going to end up on the hook. That's what Peter is talking about. How do you resist him? Well, Peter says with faith. With faith. With, 
with things that you believe to be true. So when the Dayton, you, you see, when Satan comes, he comes with lies. And you need to be ready to answer it. So when Satan says, you, you really need to have this to have happiness, you, you resist that with faith. That that's not true. If I could have the whole world, you see, without Jesus, there's no happiness. And if I can have Jesus, then the world can do as it likes. But if I have Jesus, I have happiness. What do you believe? What do we believe about God? When there's some circumstance and you, the, the, the devil is promising you that this is not how it's supposed to be, that something's gone wrong, God has abdicated his throne or forsaken his responsibility, you need to grab a hold of faith. What do you believe about God? Is he sovereign? I'm convinced he's sovereign. Is he faithful? I believe he's faithful. Does he care for me? Yes, I have a cross to prove it. So Satan be gone. But you got to have faith. And you got to exercise the faith. When Satan comes to accuse you, and that's, that he is called the accuser of the brothers. Devil, diabolos, means slanderer. He loves to accuse. And he'll, he'll point out your sin. And he'll point out the reasons why God would be perfectly just to condemn you forever. In fact, that's probably what he's done. God has probably given up on you. Just look at your track record. Who could possibly, possibly, continually to forgive someone like you? I mean, seriously. If God is holy, and you know he's holy, if God says, right, um, that he's going to judge those who are wicked, you don't think you're, that's how Satan will talk. How are you going to resist that? I'm not so bad. Look at the guy down the street. That's not going to work. Your only weapon is faith. You see, you take up the reality of the gospel. You take the promises of God. My Bible says that if I confess my sin, he, God, is faithful and just. He's just to cleanse and forgive and wash me clean. Of all unrighteousness, devil, you got nothing to say. Because my sin was laid on my Savior and he atoned for it and he took the curse that was against me and he nailed it to that cross. And you're not taking it back off. It's done. It's finished. That's amazing. You can take the gospel and hold it up. So Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. But Peter doesn't say just resist him with faith. He says resist him with firm faith. This is critical. Uh, Ed Clowney in his commentary says Satan can only be resisted with a firm and settled faith. You see, you have to actually believe your faith or it's, it's not going to work. You, got, you have to actually believe that God is sovereign and that he's faithful and that he's good and that he loves you and that he gave Jesus Christ and nothing can separate you from the love of God. You have to believe all of it and you've got to believe it all the way down. And you need, if you're going to believe it, you need to know it. That's why we need to know our Bible. That's why we need to know theology. We, what do you actually believe? Everybody talks about Jesus out there. And they'll assure you that Jesus would never do this and Jesus would never say that. Well, what, is, what does the Bible actually say? You need to know. Do you understand why so many people who call themselves Christians are just being swept along with the flood of our culture today? Because they just don't know what this says. This isn't the faith, you see, that that actually functions. You're not going to stand with a weak faith. 
James says the one with a doubting mind who's got questions about this and not quite sure about that and is willing to think about this, you have that kind of mind that he's not going to receive anything from the Lord. He's an unstable man. We've got to know. So we, and so we read our Bible. Lord, see, what does is, what is Peter say in 2 Peter chapter 1? We, we, we opened with it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God. In the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a firm faith. Oh, it's so important, friends, for us to grow it. Because for, trials will come. Trials come in your life day after day. Trials are going to come. Uh, they're going to they're come in devastating ways. Ways that will, sh- that will shake your faith. It's, it's what I worry about. <laughs> I worry. This is on my heart. When I think about the church, when I think about my children, when the next Great trial comes. I mean a, the devastating trial, the war, the disease, the, the, the overwhelming poverty and your kids don't have enough to eat and persecution comes and people are dying and ending up in prison and perfectly good, good families are being ripped apart by, by what the devil is doing and people are falling away from the faith and the devil seems to be running rampant and God seems to be absent and faith doesn't seem to make much sense anymore. Then what? It's easy to talk about on a nice Sunday morning here in July. But then what? Because the reality is that Jesus says that many will fall away from the faith. Many. Will that be you? Will that be your your children? Will that be Harvest Church? You see, we need to be we need to be firm. We need to be firm. A casual faith won't do it. An implicit faith won't do it. If you're sitting here this morning and you just sort of believe whatever the church believes, you kind of just accept whatever your parents taught you, that will not stand you when the trial comes. It will not stand you. You will not be able to resist what the devil is telling you at that moment. What everybody else around you is is suggesting is true. You will not be able to resist because you don't know. And you're not convinced. See, Paul, think of all the suffering that Paul experienced. How is he able to do it? This is how he's able to do it. I know, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded, I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that great day. I know it. I'm convinced of it. Are you? Edmund Clowney, again, in his commentary on 1 Peter, tells the story of Marie Durand. She's a Huguenot, French Huguenot. In southern France, overlooking the Mediterranean, stands the Tower of Constance. There in the 18th century, Huguenot women were imprisoned for decades because they refused to surrender the Reformed faith. Marie Durand was imprisoned in 1729. She was 18 years old. Some say she was 15. There's a little discrepancy, but I think 18 is probably appropriate. 18 years old. Put yourself there. Two years later, her older brother Pierre, a young pastor in the Reformed churches, was hanged. Her mother, her father, and her husband all died under the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church. 
Marie was promised, along with the other women, that she would be immediately freed if she would simply do one thing. All she had to do was recant the doctrines of the Reformed Church, particularly the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. If she would simply renounce that truth, she could go free. She refused to do so. And she remained captive for 38 years. Resisting the temptations to suicide, to despair, to betrayal. She had a ministry of letters, of encouragement. You can go to France today and you can see those letters. She was finally released 38 years after imprisonment, 1767. She died nine years later. And if you visit the Tower of Constance today, you'll see in the room where Marie was imprisoned for all those years, there's a single word that's been carved into the stone surrounding the round opening in the floor of that room. And the one word is this, resiste, resist. She wasn't going to quit. That's the calling, you see, for a believer. Resist the devil. Firm in your faith. And no matter what trials, no matter what heartaches, no matter what hardships, we're not giving up the faith. Now the question is, but what if my faith isn't strong enough? What if my faith isn't sufficient? Because you see, even strong faith can be shaken at times. If you don't believe that, just read Psalm 73 where Asaph, a godly man, says, my, as for me, my feet almost slipped. When I, when I saw the, the arrogant, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're flourishing. And they scoff at God. And what am I doing suffering like this? As a child of God, he Strong faith can be challenged. Strong faith can, 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 can stumble. And so Peter gives two great encouragements. We'll wrap with this. And we'll deal with this a bit more next week. Uh, not next week, but the following, Lord willing. One, he says this strange thing. Uh, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, how would that be comforting? Well, it just tells you, friends, you're not alone. You're not alone. Suffering means that you're part of God's people and you're not doing this alone. This is the mark of those who belong to Christ. And it means that you have brothers and sisters who are walking these same roads. They're experiencing the similar trials and they've proved the faithfulness of God. You have people right by you who can promise you on the basis of what they know the word to say and their own experience. They can say, I know it's hard, but I promise you, God is faithful. Hang on. It's tremendous encouragement to belong to the body of Christ. And when you're in the time of trial and those people gather around you and minister to you, you experience the richness of that fellowship. But most importantly, we have everlasting arms underneath us. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The adversary does not win. No matter how weak you are, the God of all grace is sufficient. It's exactly what he told Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. And that's the glorious good news of the gospel. That when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He is a defeated foe. The scriptures, the pages of scripture are full of the promise that the devil has been defeated and will soon be ultimately crushed 
and destroyed. There's no doubt. Jesus Christ came to free those who all their lives were held in bondage to fear of death because of the devil. But Christ, Christ has conquered. And so the question for you today is, are, do you participate in that victory? Is, is Christ's victory your victory? Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 21, and, and that's exactly what the psalm's about. The victory of the king. And the question is, do you know that to be true for you? Because you have an adversary. But the greatest truth about you, if, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have a Savior. A mighty, mighty Savior. And that Savior promises to hold you fast. He promises to hold you up. Your calling is to flee to him. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul. He, he, the words just resonate with weak people like us. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. And then a verse I'd not seen before. Wilt thou not regard my call? Will God just turn a deaf ear? Wilt thou not accept my prayer? Lo, I sink, I faint, I fall. Lord, on thee I cast my care. Reach to me thy gracious hand while I of thy strength receive. Hoping against hope I stand. Dying, yet behold, I live. And that's the testimony of God's people. The war is raging. Jesus is reigning. Let's rest in him. Amen. Oh God in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his victory on our behalf. I thank you, God, that though the devil prowls and roars, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that we would have the wisdom to, open, uh, to have open eyes, clear minds, to see where the devil is attacking us very subtly, encouraging us to live for things that are passing away, to give ourselves to idols that will only enslave us. It seems like a little thing. It seems to us to be maybe just a matter of wisdom, preference, but Lord, maybe our, there's a great wound ahead of us. We're just not, we're not aware. Maybe a great sin has enslaved us. We don't even know it yet. Lord, I, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, to know the devil's lies, to understand and know the word of God with which we can defend ourselves. And I thank you, Lord for the promise of God that holds us. I thank you that there's a love that will not let us go, ever. And we rest this morning gladly in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.